This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Resource Center. This is Audrey Raj. It's the first Tuesday of the month, which means organizational psychologist and CEO of Opsych, Hetal Doshi, is joining me for another episode of Psychology at Work. Hetal, good morning. We are tackling a tough one today, aren't we? Yes, we are, Audrey. It's not a very fun topic, but I think it's really well worth time invested in really thinking about uh, potential. Companies that are thinking about laying off uh, employees. Yes. So, uh, as Hetal just suggested on the show today, we're going to be discussing a better approach to layoffs. Now, we've all heard of a friend or a friend of a friend who's been laid off or retrenched over the course of this pandemic, and just like how the economic fallout from COVID-19 has been unprecedented, the way we treat layoffs and retrenchments should also be managed with an um, with an unprecedented level of empathy and care. Right, Hetal? I love that. I love the matching of empathy to the volatility of what is going on. Mm. That's brilliantly put, Audrey. You know, what I really like to talk a little bit about is how we want to pre-shock ourselves before making a decision about laying off employees. Pre-shock? Pre-shock, yeah. Create pre-shock because there will be a shock that is created on employees who are experiencing it and so it's important for organizations to imagine these shocks and the implication of it before you even consider it. Um, there's this wonderful quote by Benjamin Franklin that justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. What that means is that you are going to be causing an outrage in your organization towards people who are, who people who are being outplaced. And so justice can only be served if you really, really think about how much you're going to create that outrage and kind of make sure that it's a very just approach, uh, an approach which has a lot of consideration about justice before you even think about it. So there are some cases where because it, um, employees haven't been conscious about uh, the impact of outrage on employees, um, they have suffered major consequences, especially coming out in the news about the way that they've treated employees. Recently, a bank in Malaysia had come out in the news because they had, um, you know, kind of created a restructuring or reorganization up to three times in six years. And that's once every two years. So in once every two years, if you're going to feel, if you're going to have like maybe 600 to 1,000 people in the, in the organization leaving, that is like a perpetual ongoing stimulation of fear, anxiety um, in the workplace. And while it is okay, I guess to create a system where you want to have some kind of a cleansing every two years, it is important that you also mention that as part of the hiring process, not just as part of the firing process. Um, recently, we also had a casino in Cambodia that had up to about um, 2,000 uh, members of the organization that had petitioned against the outplacement of about um, 8,000 of its, sorry, 1,003 of its 8,000 employees. And this particular casino actually recorded a $102 million net profit in 2020. And even then, so these are organizations mm. that are doing really well and they are utilizing layoffs as a way to, you know, create efficiencies in the system without giving any consideration about the impact of individuals as well as the community. 
uh, going forward. And this is 2021. This is not, uh, you know, 1950s where you stop considering communities, stop considering the impact on families, right? So in this particular case, um, there was a big riot that, that had come around through the unions um, and, and it came out all over the news. And so you may want to, as an organization, consider really the uh, reputational damage that you would be experiencing. You know, the rage can be as far as in Singapore, where um, Audrey, in Singapore, the, the last kind of employee strike that they ever had was in 1986. And somewhere around, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was another strike from 1986, no strikes ever. And then a strike came about because of um, employees who felt unfairly treated. And these were the Chinese nationals in a public transportation system, where they felt that they were earning significantly less than their Malaysian counterparts in Singapore. Um, And eventually, uh, what is interesting, Audrey, is that they're really just fighting for some kind of justice that can be re- can actually be thought of very easily as part of the exercise itself. Uh, ultimately, the, the individuals in this particular case in Singapore were given $25 increment, which is really nothing at all. But it's still something. Um, and, uh, you know, I just wanted to share as well that uh, if reputation is not an important thing for an organization, then maybe your life might be or the life of somebody else. In the case of an airline industry in Malaysia, an airline company in, in, in Malaysia, a particular pilot had um, you know, committed suicide recently uh, because of a retrenchment exercise. In Penang, there was an individual who took his car and rammed it into the HR department because of feeling unfairly treated and retrenched. And in France, in a telco that was earning, one of the top 10 telcos in the world, earning, uh, having 266 million customers, right? And they decided that because it was difficult to retrench, Audrey, uh, because it was difficult to retrench in France, they decided that maybe the best ways was to create a very toxic environment and induce enough fear for people to want to leave on their own accord. And because of this particular experience, about 35 employees out of, um, I can't remember the exact number who eventually left, but 35 employees um, performed a mass suicide. They hung themselves, set themselves on, on fire. They threw themselves out of windows and even threw themselves under trains to prove points and leave letters behind accusing bosses of management by terror. In these case, in this particular case, the CEO was jailed, if I may add, only for four months and received a $16,000 fine. But I'm sure that that would be you know, a long-lasting enough of an impact for you to not be able to sleep for a very long period of time. So I'd like to start today's particular topic by talking about the terrors of injustice and how it will be served back to you if you don't do this well. Right, right. Now, I know you wanted to start this by doing that pre-shock because you say that there is a shock to employees, but we've also heard how some employers feel that because of the conditions brought about by this pandemic, that employees should be somewhat prepared to be let go. That's just unfair, right? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think what, what we're really saying here is not the fact that you cannot let go of employees, that, you know, if you're in a very dire situation and that is your very last resort, then so be it. However, um, I think it is very important to consider a couple of things before you approach it. Now, the reason why employees end up taking very drastic measures to... Um, you know, cope with the injustice that they experience is not because of the fact that it had to be done, but because of the way that it was mm. done. So I think as we move forward in this, it would be, you know, you know, it would be great if I could also share some examples of how, you know, how this can be approached in the best way possible. And as we talk about innovation and transforming the way that we work, I think it is time to also transform the way that we layoff or right. consider layoffs. Right. Yeah. Okay, so what would be the best practices around this? So I think that, you know, the leader needs to wear a hat of a designer, right? So you are carving out the future of your organization and it's not about thinking about layoffs as an immediate uh, action item or a tactic. So you are designing and you are the architect of your future, and wearing this in mind, I think there are some questions that this designer really, really needs to begin to ask. First and foremost, design based on who you really are as a person and your character, not the reputation that you want to create. Reputation will be an outcome of the character that you are. So design based on who you really are. Be very, very concerned about the character that you have because that is going to be the most long-lasting memory that you're going to be creating, not only for yourself, your employees, hopefully also your family members around you. Make that very distinctive and consistent. What I mean by that is that if I work with organizations that talk about you know, enriching people's lives, that talk about you know, sustainable futures, if that's who you are as an organization, then make sure that everything that you're doing is in consistency of that and everything else should be okay. The second thing I think that is very, very important is to design based on what you really, really want. And this has always been the classic Ketel or Osaik approach, which is the Spice Girls thing, right? Like, Spice tell me Girls? What you want, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Right, right, okay. I don't think people want outplacement, retrenchment, layoff. That's an outcome of what may need to be done. But what do you really, really want? Um, in, the, in, the, in the Spice Girls song, Tell Me What You Want, What You Really, Really Want, it ends off what, with, I want a zigzag ah. And that's what most companies are going through. The zigzag are, what do you really want is not clear. If you're not very clear about what you want, you haven't crystallized it. Do not act out of fear. And because of that fear, you take the you know a cost-cutting approach rather than a future creation approach. So when you think about what you really, really want, there is not only the my way or the their way, but there's always a third alternative, which is the sweet spot about what is it that we really, really want for our organization, our individuals in the organization, our employees, but also for the community at large? What do we want to prove to everybody as an outcome of our vision? And a great designer is somebody who will always be able to meet the requirements, just as you always tell your employees you want them to meet the requirements of all stakeholders. But you as a leader, it is your time to really, really show how innovative you can be when you think about what you really want and how it actually lifts up all of the stakeholders rather than kills or puts anyone in the detriment of it. So I'll give you an example of an organization that I think did this extremely well. It's a Malaysian organization. You don't have to go so far. It's a telco. I can't say which one. 
this particular organization actually sat down and imagined all the pathways that the organization could take place. So first, they said a lot of people will still have to be doing the current jobs, which means we still need people. Second of all, we need people to innovate, but that's probably about 20 or 30%. So they, they, they created a separate company just for innovation. The third group of people, they said, we really need these people to really consider what they want to be doing with their lives. Um, either they're going to really upskill themselves or they're going to leave the company or that they're going to be entrepreneurs. They can do whatever they want. So what the organization said is that our future holds many pathways. They brought in groups of about 100 people at a time and talked to them about something called what's your next. This is where the organization is going. We want you to make choices about where you want to be going. But before you make these choices, we want you to completely empathize with the pain of the organization as we completely empathize with your potential pain and we co-create possibilities. This organization didn't end up retrenching or laying off any employee that didn't want to. Those who did want to did it extremely graciously and they had celebrations in place as well. This organization to me is an organization that I would definitely say would be in my book of all experiences that I've ever had, the best organization and definitely would be the one that would be the most sustainable compared to one leader, for example, who's inspiring a whole group of followers in the organization that created a movement that was extremely inspiring. And this actually promotes the whole idea of innovation within a company, which is exactly what the company wants and needs anyway, isn't it? Right, right. So why don't you just approach even the most difficult of times in that particular manner? Right. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you, Hetal, but we're going to need to take a quick break for some messages. But when we come back, we'll get back into the best practices uh, when dealing with layoffs. You're listening to Resource Center. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Brand-Friendly Marketeers, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is uh, Psychology at Work on Resource Centre. This is Audrey Raj and online with me as usual is uh, Organisational Psychologist and CEO of Osaic, Hethel Doshi. Hethel, sorry to have uh, interrupted you on that run, but you know, let's, come, let's, let's bring it back now to... Um, the leader wearing the the designer's hat when approaching these layoffs. Wonderful. So I think, you know, just one last thing when it comes to uh, being a designer, I think you really want to, as a, as a great designer, you want to create justice to a space and a time and an experience. And so I would just say that, you know, organizations that are embarking on, uh, you know, creating a movement in the organization, whatever it is, restructuring, movements, layoffs, uh, you know, even rehiring, for example. Think about organizational justice as, a, a, you know, an anchor of, um, you know, how you want your, your employees to be speaking about you. So, you know, um, a lot of times when these kind of situations take place, um, you have legal, uh, you know, you have people in the legal industry coming in and supporting these kind of movements, but never mistake law for justice. Justice is an ideal about how we treat people, whereas law is a tool to be able to exercise that and not the other way around. So you don't put the lawyers at the forefront of it. You make a decision as an organization about what is procedural justice, meaning the process, how fair it is. 
And the interactional justice, meaning the way that I treat you and approach you in this process, has to be fair. And you use legalities or the legal system to make sure that it's backed up fully. And so uh, procedural justice and interactional justice is something that I would think that all organizations should read up a little bit more on and make sure that everybody feels that they've been treated as fairly as um, possible. Okay. So now if um, just say retrenchments um, need to take place, they, they still need to be done, who should be making this announcement? You know, And what should the approach be and, and how, how quickly should it be done? Is that a fair question? Yeah, absolutely. I think that these are the questions that will be uh, causing a lot of sleepless nights on especially HR teams that potentially are the ones who are told to make these announcements. However, I think this is extremely unfair. The person who should be making the announcements are the ones who made the decision in the first place, which is the leaders. And if you had you know, that thought in your mind that you know, these are the positions that I want to create in my organization and therefore I hire these people and you create that movement. When it comes to firing, shouldn't you also be the one to create these announcements? So I think that announcements of retrenchment or layoffs should be carried out with the highest level of dignity um, and it should be taken up on the shoulders of the CEO himself or herself. Um, this is not a time to cop out. This is a time to show up and not to you know, put this responsibility on HR. This is your organization. You are the leader of the people. So show up and be the one to make the announcement and you go through the sleepless nights, not make somebody else go through the, the sleepless nights. And you know, although this is not what I wish upon anyone, but this also means that you have to go through upskilling and training so that you do you know, the best that you can on that day. Uh, when it comes to you know, some questions that people typically ask, Audrey, should we do this in a small group? Should we do this one-on-one? Should we do this in large groups? My question would, my, my, you know, my, the way that I would approach it is you can do it in whatever way and format, but the level of intimacy, authenticity has to be at its highest level. Um, and what I really mean by that is, um, you know, coming back to the character of the person making the announcement, you just have to be really true to who you are and do it in that way. Anyone who is looking at what are authentic and beautiful ways of, if at all you can say it's a beautiful way of conducting an announcement, you can look at what Airbnb did recently, I think last year in March or in May. Uh, and they wrote a memo out and it was a very thoughtfully uh, designed memo about the experience that the CEO himself was having and what are all the things that he has considered for anyone who's staying and who's leaving. I also really want to talk about chaos theories, right? Like chaos theory and the butterfly effect is all about how very small things that you do in this particular moment of crisis, very, very small things can lead to extremely huge impact and outcomes. So be very, be very careful about what you say, how you say it, and how you treat everybody in this process because it can lead to extremely positive outcomes or right. extremely negative mm. uh, outcomes as well, as we had mentioned earlier. Right. So um, what can an organization do to support those who are leaving? You know, How can an organization provide support for the exiting employees? So... Um, you can provide a whole plethora of ways to support um, individuals. Again, when it comes to support, it has to be done in the highest level of dignity and regard. Uh, and it has to be a customized approach based on what the person needs. So, so for example, some companies offer 
uh, things like uh, career guidance or upskilling or assistance in new jobs or networks, whatever not. And you're investing a lot in external providers to, to, to provide this kind of support to the individuals. But some people may just want the money. So I think offering a range of packages uh, based, you know, that is then put, the control is put back on the individual to make a decision on what works best for them could be valuable. So you could offer different packages of support, which is, you know, pure financial. It could be a combination of financial and support or pure support. Um, I really like to talk a little bit about one particular client that I work with that offered the smartest approach to uh, you know, supporting exiting employees. They actually created a community of exiting employees to, um, you know, as a community, as a committee, to come up with what exiting employees would need and want. And they designed the solutions for themselves. So it was solutions designed for exiting employees by exiting employees. It was brilliant. It was so exciting and so well done because they had career fairs. So they invited, you know, other companies to come in. It was so well done and so exciting that the ones who were in the company almost felt a little bit jealous of the ones who were leaving. Uh, it was just really, really well done. Um, and it goes again, it, go, it goes back again to the approach of, you know, wearing the hat of a designer and designing a very fun, meaningful, if you can call it that at all, uh, outcome to something that is otherwise, you know, considered to be, you know, not the best or happiest of situations. Mm. Now, what about the employee themselves? Um, is there a way for someone to kind of prepare themselves uh, for this experience? How should they, uh, as an employee, approach being retrenched? I think, Audrey, right, like, you know, um, a lot of us, when we get into an organisation, although we give up a lot of our lives to be there, and, you know, in, ho in hope that we would get something back in return as well. I'm not sure how we got disillusioned to think that an organization would always look after us, right? It is not their responsibility to look after us for the rest of our lives. No matter how much we want it, it is not their responsibility. And even our own parents would, you know, kind of want to wean off that responsibility of us, even our own parents. This concept of life as one, the only law of life as impermanence is something we need to ingrain in ourselves. Because of the concept of impermanence that nothing lasts forever, we need to, as any individual, come with this element of preparedness on how to lead our life, not how to just experience work. And I would say that, you know, approach retrenchment as a way to leading difficulties in our life and work backwards. How would you want to be proud of yourself in this particular situation? The second thing I would definitely recommend to everybody, not only from, uh, you know, how do you approach life and therefore being very prepared about it, is social capital. You know, I read somewhere, this is the most brilliant thing that I've read. Um, I recommend anybody to, like, think about this, right? In the worst case scenario, you are not going to die. You just need to have, you just need to have four friends, Okay. You just need to have four friends who you have done enough for and put in enough capital in the social network who would take you and your family for a week in a month, right? And then you can move on to the next friend who will take you for a week of the next month and so on and so forth. I think being very creative about your social capital and your network as your net worth, you know, and really looking at it as, okay, you've got 52 weeks in a year. 
let's say, for example, you're out of a job for 52 weeks. How are you going to create, you know, a social network of sorts to be able to support you in that period of time? And the beauty is that, you know, when I heard the story about somebody attempting to do this, you know, every week they lived with a different person. And because they lived with different people, of course, you know, it's COVID times, it's not going to be possible. But, you know, there still could be other ways of thinking about it, I'm sure. The idea about this is about creativity and using your social network. So this particular person, every time he or she, he, he lived with a group for a, a week, he would then also be introduced to the network of friends. And what he did was he did he put in his best effort. He did a lot of things for the house. He helped with the children. He did all kinds of things that he was then considered a value to the community of the person that he's living with. And so very quickly, within two or three months, he had at least a very small job that could help him in the interim period and you know, going forward, something even more substantial. But there are many, you know, I think, you know, uh, innovation is something that comes around when desperation kicks in. And I think rely on that. That's number one. Number two, you know, understand that everything is not permanent. There's impermanence. And the third thing is utilize and leverage on your social capital. Um, enjoy the ride as much as, as you can as well. And, and this is coming from someone who was also retrenched once in my life. Yeah. So please, as you are listening to this, you know, please do not, you know, although I, you know, I am a very privileged person, I have experienced that in my life. I do look back upon it as, um, yeah, something that I almost cherish. Um, it has taught me a few very good lessons about life itself. Thanks for sharing, Hitel. Um, okay, but what about for the people who feel like they've been hard done by you know what i mean like they feel that this is unjust and they want to contest the retrenchment exercise what do you do then i think i think for everyone you know anyone who feels that they have experienced injustice it is your absolute human right to be doing whatever it is that you deem is fair back in return um i would also get you to wear the designer's hat and start with the outcome that you really, really want and move towards creating a movement. Try not to do this alone because sometimes it's a bit scary. So creating a movement either in a small social network, you know, getting a lawyer, getting your family members, whatever. Try not to do this alone. It is very, very others. Or get a whole bunch of people who have experienced the same level of injustice together as well and create that particular movement. So, you know, um, there are many situations where... Um, so I think, you know, if I can just go back to uh, what has come out in the news in Malaysia was that um, JPPM uh, is the Department of Industrial Relations in Malaysia. They received about 9,142 9, cases last year uh, in 2020 compared to 7,000 odd in 2019. So about 2,000 uh, cases increase in one year yeah, uh, of unfair treatment um, or, you know, uh, yeah, unjust treatment of sorts. Now, approximately about 70% of these cases, 9,000 over cases, were resolved. Within the 70% of them, 40% of them were resolved through peaceful negotiations, right? So uh, taking it to court or taking it to a uh, department of industrial relations, you, you can have, you know, potentially positive outcomes to yourself because 40% of them had very peaceful negotiations of sorts that, you know, and a negotiation is always going to come out a little bit better rather than worse because you are the one fighting for something. 60% of them were resolved with uh, extra payment being given to them. Um, and 5% uh, 
went back to the workplace as a result of, uh, you know, the complaints. So I would just say that, you know, look at the outcome that you really want. Think about the process and the approach that you really want to be taking. You don't want to be the person who approaches this in as nasty a way as maybe you perceived you were treated because you want to be bigger and better than that. And you definitely want to be re-employed at some stage. Nobody wants to employ somebody who's, you know, very visibly disgruntled. And then, you know, kind of, you know, set yourself up for success. But in the event that it doesn't look too promising for, for you, invest all of the time and the extra expenses on just getting your next job or setting up your next company. I, I would definitely recommend uh, either approach, but think about it in a very rational uh, kind of a manner. All right. Uh, we're going to take another quick break to squeeze in some messages. But when we come back, we discuss uh, what an organization can do for those who survive a retrenchment exercise. All that and more coming up on Resource Centre. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Business-filled minds, BFM 89.9. You are listening to Resource Centre. This is Audrey Raj, organisational psychologist and CEO of Osaic. Hetel Doshi is online with me right now. It's episode four of our Psychology at Work series. And on this episode, we're discussing a better approach to layoffs. So Hetel, before the break, we've pretty much discuss um, how an organization can support exiting employees, um, how exiting employees can better approach uh, the whole exercise, um, what they need to do if they feel the need to contest the exercise. But I think we've kind of missed out on the people who've survived the exercise, as in the people who were not part of the exercise but still had to be uh, part of the experience and see some of their teammates or their other colleagues leave. Now, I know that some studies have shown that surviving employees tend to suffer a dip in performance post-retrenchment exercise. And this is totally understandable, right? Absolutely. It is understandable from a psychological, emotional aspect, right? Because there is a huge Survivor syndrome has a huge element of guilt, mm. meaning, you know, I feel guilty that my friends have left and I've got a job and I, you know, I'm, I'm at a more privileged kind of a, a situation. Uh, but but also, here's the truth of it, right? So some companies who say, oh, yeah, you're feeling bad right now, but it's okay. We'll just keep pushing for productivity and you'll get rid of your guilt because um, you, you'll be too stressed out about meeting KPIs to even start feeling guilty or upset about the fact that your friends have left. Or oh, oh, what about those who feel... Like, you know, you're lucky you still have a job. You're, you're speaking about employers who use uh, phrases like this. Is that what you're saying? Mm. Yeah. Um, it, I think that comes back to the character of your leader as well. And so your reputation is going to precede you. No comments for people who make statements like that. I think you just really want to go for, a, you know, a self-awareness and a discovery workshop for yourself as a leader if you're using terminologies like that. Oh, burn. And, um, and, and also, I think leaders who speak like that, you know, your longevity is not going to be there as well. So you're still lucky that you have a job right now. You know, I think we can also see in a, a recent scenario in Malaysia where, uh, you know, uh, executive chairman of an organization was asked to leave the organization. Um, it, these kind of attitudes are no longer acceptable, tolerable. And the best part about it is that uh, the public has, you know, created 
a kind of a system to rally against leaders that do not suffer consequences within their workspaces itself. And so then the public creates the ability for that person to experience the consequences, which I think is a, is a, is a very phenomenal thing. This is performance management done badly in an organization left to the public and now the public takes you know, ownership of uh, uh, performance management. Now, when it comes to individuals who are, um, who are left in the organization, one part, as I mentioned earlier, is the emotional damage and the psycho- psychological uh, trauma of sorts, yeah, small T or big T trauma, whether it's a small thing or big thing, it's still quite traumatic to have the person next to you. Uh, in this case, you know, that memory of that person sitting next to you, the memory of that person who you used to chat with who's no longer over there, creates a grieving process. But here's the reality, Audrey. When we did a recent study on an organization that had merged um, functions uh, and created a center of excellence. They had let go of about three to five hundred employees over a staggered uh, period of time. We, we did a psychosocial risk assessment, meaning what is the risk to that particular department right now. Number one thing that had occurred was even though they had retrenched the number of a certain number of employees because they expected that workload would decrease due to automation, that experience was absolutely false. And so what happens is that although we may think, yeah, productivity declines because of, yeah, you know, I feel sad that my friends have left, but productivity declines because I'm completely overwhelmed. I'm taking on the job of three people when by right automation should have kicked in and I shouldn't be, I should be just one person doing one job, but automation hasn't kicked in. Digitalization has its way of showing its red horns as well to say that it doesn't really work all the time. It creates a huge upheaval and a back backfire or backlash because you know computers and systems are also you know also have temper tantrums <laughs> and also have teething problems and so a lot of times organizations have misdiagnosis about the timing of these kind of things or whether or not it actually reduces the amount of effort sometimes simplification uh, or simplifying processes requires more people uh, to deal with the messiness before it can become simple as well so in terms of survivor syndrome which is why layoffs are not necessarily the smartest option all the time. And it should be community-driven. The community tells you this is what we should do. But what we do in some situations is something called team team strengthening programs or at least team debriefing programs. So we get teams together and talk a little bit about the experiences. And we use a very profound uh, methodology to get people to be able to see past the bend, meaning they've gone through the bend, they are currently experiencing certain things, but to see beyond it and to future, meaning create a future that they would like as a team uh, while creating a ritual to grieve the past as well. So we use you know, these kind of technologies or methodologies that you know, typically within a two-day experience of sorts with a little bit of uh, you know, one-hour episode every month to bring the team together, we do see that uh, teams do move on quite quickly uh, and with time, for example, right, uh, it kind of heals wounds well, if you have used that time well to heal all wounds as well. All right. Um, okay, it's about time for us to to wrap up already, Hetel. But before we close uh, this session today, do you have any advice for those who are planning to undertake a retrenchment exercise or who f- may feel that they are in the line of fire right now? Do you have any advice for them? I think the advice for organizations is that, you know, check your environment right now and whether people are frequently contending with a cocktail of fear-threatening events. Mm. Right? 
uh, the workplace is soon becoming a perfect petri dish for growing cultures of fear, anxiety, competition, isolation, and threat. Do not expect individuals to perform at the highest level of standards when all you are offering is a moral sewerage to work and live in. Do not expect the best if you are providing the very worst kind of a environment for them uh, to live in. You know, it is it creates terrible memories. It produces terrible trauma uh, in both the organization as well as individuals. Uh, for business leaders, get the help and support that you need. I know, I know that for majority of you who are having to go through it, you yourself are probably feeling high levels of fear, anxiety, and you may also be behaving in ways uh, that are not characteristic of you at all, but because of the fear, you behave in that way. For employees who are experiencing this, go back to the theory of impermanence. And really, really work your way around to understanding that there are 7 billion people in the world. There are hundreds and thousands of organizations. And there are plethora of opportunities for anyone who so desires to begin to venture on a path of adventure. So take it as a point of, I know as hard as it is, an adventure to rediscover new possibilities for yourself as well. Um, And to everyone who's listening in, you know, this is the time to set each other up for success. So just be that person. Just just really be that person to set and help as many people set themselves up for success as well. Right. Thank you for that, Hetel. Uh, and on that note, uh, I think that is a wrap for this episode of Psychology at Work. If you missed out on any part of this conversation or would like to catch up on some of our previous sessions where we discuss things like how to make work suck less, uh, how to make work stress work for you, or even the imposter syndrome, go look for the podcast on the BFM website. That's bfm.my. You can also find our podcast on the BFM app that's available on the Apple App Store and on Google Play. I've been speaking with Hetel Doshi, organizational psychologist and CEO of OSYC. Hetel will be back again same time next month for more on psychology at work. My name is Audrey Raj and this has been Resource Centre on Enterprise BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.